Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast, everyone. Uh, my name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. And today I am talking with Abby Martin uh, of the Empire Files about Biden's foreign policy. Thank you, Abby, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to read from, uh, I, I had a little promo in the newsletter, and I think this is a a good place to start because it, it kind of addresses some of the, you know, more fresh stuff that's happened. Uh, so last week, a U.S. raid in Syria resulted in the deaths of 13 civilians, including six children. Uh, the Biden administration has claimed uh, all of those deaths, uh, or at least all of the children's deaths, were the result of the raid's target, an ISIS leader, uh, detonating a suicide vest. But there's been little to no actual evidence presented for this claim. Instead, Press Secretary Jen Psaki implied that anyone questioning the official narrative is disloyal to the U.S. As a number of commentators have pointed out, the administration doesn't exactly have the credibility on civilian deaths to be taken on faith. A missile strike in Afghanistan last year that the administration claimed was aimed at known militants was revealed by an extensive New York Times investigation to have blown up an innocent family. So this is quoting from the investigation. Times reporting has identified the driver as Zamari Ahmadi, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, a longtime worker for a U.S. aid group. The evidence suggests that his travels that day actually involved transporting colleagues to and from work, and an analysis of video feeds showed that, the, that what the military may have seen was Mr. Ahmadi and a colleague loading canisters of water into his trunk to bring home to his family. While the U.S. military said the drone strike may have killed three civilians, Times reporting shows that it killed 10, including seven children in a dense, dense uh, residential block. That's from the Times. Uh, and this is from Al Jazeera. Over the past year, Joe Biden has talked like Barack Obama, but walked like Donald Trump on foreign policy. Uh, this is Marwan uh, Bashara. But as he lacks the eloquence and bullishness of his predecessors, the president has fallen f- flat through and through. Uh, so for more on that, uh, Abby, I, I was just kind of hoping if, if maybe we could just take that as a jumping off point and, it, you know, that, that kind of uh, atrocity uh, from last week and the Biden administration's kind of history on this stuff in, in the first year that they've, that they've been in office. And uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious as to how you think that what, – what you think that tells us about the Biden administration uh, foreign policy priorities – and what direction we're kind of going in here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there because, you know, every country, of course, it's kind of sad to dive in and realize that it's, by and large, a continuation of Trump's foreign policy. Of course, there's many caveats to that and nuances to explore. But um, but overall, I think if you're looking at the big picture, there has been just pretty much a continuation when it comes to sanctions um bombings actually even though there's been a sharp reduction in drone strikes specifically but airstrikes in general are continuing uh and you know just the the main things that we really thought biden was going to shift immediately and that's what i was really hoping for which is which is the uh iran nuclear deal and the end to the operations in yemen and unfortunately, and of course, I was hoping for a normalization with Cuba, similarly to what we saw under Obama, uh, because he really did pull in the same foreign policy cabinet, largely that existed under Obama. Um, and so I just assumed that we'd see similar policies. But sadly, those things did not happen. And, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan and Syria, frankly, 
and Yemen, of course, are just absolutely devastating, essentially U.S.-made catastrophes that are unfolding in both Afghanistan and Yemen. Because, of course, the Saudi coalition would not be able to do anything that it is doing without the explicit approval, consent, and, of course, many more facets that are being directly provided by the U.S. So let's dig in there. I mean, should we start with Syria and kind of just break down just what's going on? Yeah, I, th- I think um, just before that, I just kind of want yeah. to, you know, the the foreign policy team that he has around him um, has been pretty quiet. Uh, mm-hmm. it, like, like they're not quite as forward uh, in in the uh, trying to figure out the right way to say this. It. Like, you know, like like Trump's people and Obama's people at different points were kind of like you know out there and they were saying, hey, you know, like. Uh, uh, the, the, addressing the press, etc. Uh, but this is, you know, we Jake Sullivan is there and and uh, and and Blinken, but they've they've largely been pretty quiet, and uh, that seems to be generally the way that this administration has approached the press and the people on pretty much all of its decisions. Uh, and so it has been a little bit difficult to kind of figure out like what their motivations are, even, even though obviously. When you're hearing from uh, any government official, like they're just going to give you the spin, but like we don't even really hear the spin so much. We just we just kind right. of hear a couple things from you know Pisaki or Price, and then that's kind of it. Um, I, I don't know if you if you have any comment on that, but if, if not, we yeah we could definitely move to like Syria with what's going on there. Yeah, no, it is it is a good point because you had Mike Pompeo, who's the most out of control. I mean, just. The fact that John Bolton and Mike Pompeo were like the forefront of the Trump administration's foreign policy and were just absolutely like pro-genocidal maniacs. You know, I mean, John Bolton, everyone gave credit to Trump for firing him, even though Trump hired him. And then later on, Trump was like, yeah, he actually wasn't like harsh enough. It's like, dude, why are you like putting words in Trump's mouth? Like he is so crazy that he actually wanted John Bolton to be more maniacal and more, you know, brutal when it came to like all of these policies across Latin America. Mike Pompeo, I mean, this guy was a maniac. He literally thought like Armageddon was on our doorstep because he believed in like biblical prophecy. So it's just incredible that these were the people tasked with foreign policy under Trump. But yeah, Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, who's the National Security Advisor, these are both like, you know, longstanding figures in the foreign policy establishment. Biden's uh, closest foreign policy advisor, actually, during the, you know, during him championing the invasion of Iraq, he actually was really close to Blinken back then. He's always been kind of a hardline advocate of war in Libya and Syria. And uh, Jake Sullivan was a... Um, embedded in Obama's foreign policy cabinet. He was also a close top advisor to Hillary Clinton. She actually said in her memoir that he was like by her side everywhere he everywhere she went, excuse me. Um, yeah, so, I think I remember like he, he was like primed to be part of the, part of her administration had she won in 2016 as well. Totally. And so like this coupled with all the think tanks that we knew were instrumental in the transition team, like I knew that it was not going down a good route. <laughs> but like my even my very low expectations were shattered when I realized like he wasn't even going to do like the bare minimum of what we thought he would with this cabinet. So it is unfortunate. And, you know, the whole framing of Biden's 
foreign policy really just, when I say it's a continuation of Trump's, I mean, it's like basically a continuation of every predecessor because no one can question the underlying narrative that we are an empire, that we have 800 to 1,000 military bases around the world, and that it is our duty that America has this supremacist mentality that it is our duty and right to basically just do whatever we want around the world with no legal recourse or accountability. So that's really the framework that I try to approach all these issues in because it's just funny that the U.S. media just provides no context or anything, really. Um, No other perspective when it's talking about America's wars and foreign policy. And mostly it's just like background noise, to be honest. I mean, really, unless there's some sort of war drive, like what we're seeing right now with the Ukraine situation, it just seems like all the violence that's externalized by the U.S. is just total background noise. And we just do not talk about it, (laughs) even though it's like our policies are subjugating like tens of millions of people at this moment. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, like you said, so let's get into some specifics. I think... um, Probably want to maybe want to start with Syria. So it really does seem that the Biden administration's policy on Syria is kind of more like the Obama. I mean, this and this is me, you know, asking you for correction Mm -hmm. if I I have this wrong. Absolutely. But it seems to me that what they're doing is they have these kind of like the same kind of targeted strikes uh, that Obama did with like not wanting to go all the way into war, but basically wanting to have like as close to full dominance over uh, the country, being able to strike wherever as, as is possible with, with a country as close to Russia as Syria is. Right. And this, you know, this latest raid seems like more of the same. Um, And, you you know, I, I think that the, the Syria issue should be understood, I think, a little bit, as, you know, along with the Ukraine situation, because these are both areas where Russia and the U.S. are kind of orbiting each other and kind of fighting a war, sort of. But it's just they're just kind of vying for position a little bit. Uh, I'm curious what you think about that take and and yeah, and your take as well. Yeah, um, well, let's first talk about Trump, because I, I always like just building the context of how Trump left these uh, conflict zones, because of, as we know, Owen, this has been a huge problem is a, a huge number of people essentially caping for Trump's foreign policy, basically taking his words at face value, claiming that he was an anti-war president, when in reality, he dramatically escalated almost every single, actually every single conflict uh, arena, you know, staging arena for U.S. troops and military operations. So in Syria, I mean, Trump totally kicked up the Syria war. He basically increased troops 10 times the number that Obama left. And he dramatically escalated airstrikes. He doubled civilian casualties. He quadrupled, nearly quadrupled drone strikes in the region. Of course, this was all under the auspices of fighting ISIL and ISIS. um, But I mean, it just caused an just an untold amount of civilian deaths. And then, of course, there was that infamous bragging where he said, you know, we're we're just here to take the oil. And then people just gave him credit for, like, not knowing that there was troops there and basically saying, oh, his advisor tricked Trump. Trump really tried to withdraw the troops, but then he was tricked. It's like, dude, I don't buy any of this shit. So basically, 
Trump left several hundred troops there. I think like nine, I think there's like 900 troops right now in Syria, which is just kind of crazy that we are continuing to illegally occupy Syria. And it's just astounding that, again, like the U.S. has this right to just be in Syria and uh, sanctioning Syria, essentially. So as you mentioned, that raid that that just happened that killed all of these civilians and they're blaming it all on this ISIS guy. Um, witnesses are saying that, you know, at least 13 people dead, six children, four women were from U.S. bombs and bullets. So that's what witnesses are saying. I'm sure that, you know a little bit on both sides are true in terms of uh, the suicide de- detonation. I know that that's happened before. So we d- we just don't know. And again, we can't take anything that the U.S. is saying at face value because they just lie about everything. And, and it does seem like Biden thought that this was going to be like a big moment for him, like similarly to everyone drinking from the blood goblet when Obama ordered the assassination of bin Laden. But it doesn't really seem like this one really gave Biden the accolades he was looking for. And I think at this point, people kind of understand that this is like a hydra. Like, if you knock a head down of an ISIL leader, another one's going to just immediately take its place. You know, taking out these leaders is just like causing more and more people to just emerge in the organization. And every time you take out a leader and commit these horrific drone strikes or night raids, how many people who are survivors who lose their friends and family who die in these raids are going to grow up wanting to join organizations like this. So it just, the logic just falls apart. But yeah, since Biden got into office, I mean, remember that was like one of his first acts uh, was like bombing the quote unquote Iranian backed militias in Syria that killed 22 people, I think back in April of 2021. And so right out of the gate, I knew that, you know, he was going to continue that same sort of policy to just basically just take unilateral action. Um, against Congress's wishes, even though I'm sure if you did vote, if we did see a vote, they'd probably vote <laughs> in favor of this because, again, it's this, this conventional wisdom that this is okay. But like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's no accountability for any of these things that even just the few strikes that have been really heinous that Biden has overseen, this one that killed all these civilians and then the Afghanistan one that you mentioned. And then later on, after they tried to cover it up and hide the facts, when it when the truth came out, they were just like, there's no one, no one's going to be held accountable for this. And it's just like, what kind of message is that sending? You know, I mean, it's just so, it's just so startling that this is like the way that we operate. It's like just complete impunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy. And then did you hear about that New York Times investigation that found that the U.S. purposely bombed that giant dam in right, Syria? Right. Um, that was on a do not bomb list. It was specifically on a list saying do not bomb because it could be poised to like cause catastrophic destruction, possibly killing tens of thousands of people. And they just bombed the fuck out of it with a bunker buster bomb. And basically what we found out from that investigation, and this is, of course, they lied and covered all of this up until essentially now when this investigation uncovered this, that there's like a secret task force that operates in such secrecy, according to the New York Times, called Task Force 9, that it doesn't even inform its military partners of its actions. So this is a little disturbing that there's even like unaccountable facets of these like special forces operators that don't even have to like report what's going on. (laughs) Who aren't exactly like accountable themselves to begin with, right? Like, yeah, I, I think that's it. They really don't have any credibility, I think, for for this 
Syria strike, um, you know, claiming that it was a suicide vest. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say that that 100% didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, this is... When their, when their response to people asking questions is to, you know, question the questioner's loyalty, I think that that shows that, you know, they it's just this utter contempt that they have uh, for the press and for the people that, uh, and, and I think, I think the reason that that is important is because it does speak to this culture of impunity, where they just really believe that they are not that they should not be questioned. And I think that's been, uh, I, I think that's something that you will find in any administration. Uh, but the last four, including this one, it's really been put into overdrive, um, especially when it comes to foreign policy, because like you're saying, like there is this, there is this uh, understanding that, you know, we are an empire and that can't be questioned, but there's also this understanding that, um, that you know we're at war with this enemy, and and the war must be won at all costs. And what that actually means is never really defined, or the, you know the definition changes over time. Uh, but it, the one thing that continues to happen is just war and destruction and violence, and and with, without impunity, like you uh, or with impunity, like you like you were saying, like without any consequence. Um, with with U.S. operations in in Syria ongoing um, and with, you know, the pullout from Afghanistan. And, and I mean, there's the famine there that, that, that is just going on. Um, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder what you, what we can even really say the U S policy under Biden in the middle East is in, 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 or even in, in just the general uh, uh, West uh, Southwest Asia region, because it just seems to be, uh, violence, but then also just kind of a, a general kind of disconnect. Um, and I, I'm, I'm curious what you see when you look at that and you look at the way uh, that they're approaching this. Yeah. So Biden, in like his first major foreign policy speech, of course, he was also kind of placating the anti-war crowd by just like Trump was being like, no more endless wars. We want to get out of this situation where we're just mired down in these endless wars. And so that was like this talking point that you heard over and over again. And so he has, he reestablished that, reiterated that talking point in this big foreign policy speech last year. But basically what he said was that even though he wants to withdraw from Afghanistan, this was before, of course, he did, and take out these large number of troops in these war zones, he did talk about how the, he needed, an American needed um, to use small forces for these kind of one-off counterterrorism operations. And that's exactly what we see continued under the framework of the authorization for use of military force, this open-ended agreement that was passed overwhelmingly. Of course, that one May vote was Barbara Lee. This was in the wake of 9-11 in a, you know, in a country completely beholden with fear and terror. And the government was just given a blank check. Uh, and so for the last 20 years, it's just this ordained right to just kill anyone anywhere. The entire world is a battleground. And we're seeing... Biden go back to that kind of AUMF framework where we're like, we're still going to be carrying out these operations wherever we want in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. But um, but at the same time, we understand that the Asia pivot is also instrumental in this policy shift. So getting mired down in 
Afghanistan, for example, bogged down in the Middle East, which we did for the last 20 years, like they knew, and Anthony Blinken has described this. In fact, he just did an, uh, an interview in the Australian where he's basically saying China is the biggest threat. China is the biggest threat that we need to focus on. And this is laid out in foreign policy document after foreign policy document. It's very explicitly clear what all of this is. The shift in foreign policy is basically China and Russia are the big competitive, you know, they're the big uh, competitors. And that's what the whole shift needs to focus on. So this isn't driven by morality. This isn't driven by altruism. This is just simply strategy on behalf of the U.S. empire. And what's terribly sad about it is that all, you know, all of these people, the refugee crisis, I mean, up, Brown University said up to 80 million people who have been driven out of their homes from these regions that have just been used as a battleground by the U.S. empire for the last 20 years. And for what? Like, what was it all for? I mean, we know to line the coffers of the people in the military industrial complex, but it's just like absolutely insane. Again, the lack of accountability and the lack of like reparations um, and economic help to these people. And I just wanted to just say this one thing about Syria, because, you know, people like may be confused. Okay, why are we in Syria? Is it really just about the oil? Well, it's not just about natural resources in a resource rich region. It's about the fact that these countries were once colonized and there was an infectious liberation struggle after Sykes-Pico, after these countries were under the colonial hold of a lot of the imperial partners with the U.S. today. So Syria is one of those countries that is still on the chopping block. Now they'll use the justification of ISIL, but before then it was about ousting Assad. And so you're going to see this continue until the U.S. achieves its goals, which is basically subservience and total domination of the, of the region. And like you said before, the partnership between Syria and Russia continues to upset U.S. hegemony. Um, but yeah, I think that that's really what we're seeing overall is like is really the encapsulation of Russia with the Ukraine situation, of course, playing out and also um, uh, pivoting toward China as how can we really focus on what we know is coming um, in terms of competitive advantage on the world stage. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like that, like that, that pivot is very very clear and i i also think that um you know the 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 ukraine situation as well uh and and i said this on on tuesday's show uh you know i would urge everybody to check out jack crosby's piece in rolling stone where he just talks about you know his time there and just the knowledge that any escalation uh between you know basically between russia and ukraine or russia and the u.s or whatever is just going to catch innocent people uh in between it and i think that that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit when you're referring to you know all of these pivots and strategy and stuff but the human cost is just so high and they just don't they they, they just don't care um and i i know we have a caller and and, and i think we'll get to you in about uh 10 minutes or so but um I wanted to move over a little bit to Yemen, uh, which has been just this ongoing catastrophe, disaster, uh, largely aided at the very least by the U.S. uh, by helping the Saudi-UAE coalition. And 
it you know it it doesn't seem like things are. Getting, I think they just made the they they just declared the Houthis um, terrorists again or something like that. What exactly happened there? Yeah, so he's he's toying with basically uh, putting them on the terrorist list, which is just going to exacerbate the crisis because this is this is really due to the naval blockade. And so when you're denying humanitarian assistance because people are designated under the terrorist list, um, that's going to just further restrict the ability to get food and assistance and medicine to the vast majority of people who are living under so-called Houthi rule. So that's what just happened. And this, of course, is just coming on the heels of like the horrific, I mean, this the U.S.-Saudi coalition bombing this telecom facility, knocking out the internet for several days. And during that internet outage, there was like several massacres committed, including one target targeting of a detention center, which killed 70 people. The fact that this is just happening on the daily is just incomprehensible, the amount of suffering. And again, this is a manufactured crisis. And the U.S. is doing a lot more than I actually thought they were still. I mean, I thought that uh, you know, the refueling stopped under Trump, but basically everything else is still continuing um, much more than just U.S. backing. It's actually intelligence commanders are there providing targets still. It's just it's just stunning, you know, and this whole rebranding operation under under Biden by basically saying, oh, we're making this huge announcement where we're just going to do defensive aid to Saudi. It's like that that means nothing because According to Riyadh and Saudi officials, this is a defensive war. So, like, what exactly are you talking about? This designation is meaningless. It's meaningless. Um, yeah. So it's just cosmetic, honestly. And and we just saw this approval of almost $1 billion in weapons in November. This was the big weapons deal with Saudi since Biden got elected. And, um, you know, it's basically dangerous rebranding because at least under Trump, it seemed like there was much more outrage in Congress. Um, And now it seems like people have actually not only sought to kind of normalize this genocidal war, but also basically think that something's been changed, you know, kind of putting minds at ease when really it it has been nothing but window dressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's, it's been pretty depressing to see that uh, propagandizing of, of what's going on uh, catching hold. Although I, you know, I think we all kind of, knew that there was going to be a lot of that once, once a Democrat was in office doing the exact same thing. Um, you had mentioned, uh, when we were talking before about Trump's drone strikes, uh, in, you know, just across the region, um, what's Biden's policy been on that? And is, is that at least something that we can look at as, as an improvement or, or is that just more of the same? That's an interesting thing that Biden's been doing very quietly. Again, as you mentioned, he's very kind of quiet. He's not really putting himself out there. I think we know why. Uh, but Kamala's not much better. So it's kind of like this blank slate where people have to really figure out what's going on behind the scenes. But, you know, I think Obama being branded as the drone king and really popularizing and cementing this policy of unabated drone warfare, you know, bombing five to six predominantly Muslim countries. Of course, it started under Bush, but it was greatly exacerbated under Obama. And then Trump comes in nearly quadruples drone strikes. And it was like, 
how did no one talk about that? I mean, it really was what Trump said he was going to do. He said that he was going to bomb the shit out of them. And he absolutely did that. He also told the Pentagon to take the gloves off and basically stopped requiring transparency for civilian casualties. Like it was really, really bad. Um, And interestingly, since Biden got in, and I've barely seen anyone talking about this, because I guess it's like, you don't want to give accolades to Biden and you don't want to like, congratulate him on something that you don't know what the actual motive is it's like what why are they doing this you know because we know it's not guided by all of a sudden they care about civilians dying as we know 90 percent of all civil uh, i'm sorry of all drone strikes basically kill civilians but this is what's happened since biden got into office there's been a huge decline in drone strikes but there has been zero articulation of a policy shift So like, it's just kind of piecemeal being fed to reporters, like behind the scenes advisors saying this and that, but like Biden has not made a speech being like, you know, I'm going to turn around this horrific drone strike policy that Trump exacerbated. And we're really going to like take accountability and figure out what's, what the hell's going on. You know, like none of that has happened, but, um, but the number of drone strikes has plummeted in basically every single country. Uh, during his first six months in office, Biden did not authorize a single strike, a single strike. And then he broke the streak, uh, I think, against Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So that started. Um, but he also like set up a new system, apparently, right when he got in that required White House approval for any strikes outside active war zones. So I guess he wanted more oversight and authorization directly instead of like Trump just being like, do whatever the hell you want. Um, and the numbers are pretty stark. I mean, when you look at the comparison of what Trump was overseen compared to Biden, it, it's pretty low. Uh, you know, of course, I think that we would agree that like every drone strike is wrong. You know, none of these are OK, but it is objectively like a good thing that these drone strikes are lessening because that means far less civilians are dying. But according to Air Wars, which has been thoroughly documenting drone strikes ever since the existence of or the popularization of the policy, they're they're worried that what's going to emerge from this is kind of a hybrid Trump Obama approach. I don't know what that means, but it could mean like less protections in place for civilians adopting some of the worst aspects of Obama's and Trump's policy. But basically, um, you know, I think that we can all agree that like there is a reason for this and we don't know what it is yet. So does it mean that this lull and strike signifies more of the Asia pivot? shift to China and Russia or what. But again, objectively, I think this is something that um, is good, just like Biden withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, like he needs to get credit for that. And I think that this is a good thing. And we need to keep the pressure on to um, eventually eliminate drone strikes altogether. Yeah, when um, when I worked over at Common Dreams, uh, one of the thing one, one of the stories that I I think I, I may have written it twice, like in two years, but um, I remember that not only was Trump accelerating uh, the drone strikes, but his administration was actively trying to suppress any information on civilian deaths. Um, like to an extent, like, and, and just really need to be clear here. Like o- Obama was terrible on this stuff. Like uh, the transparency, the complete, there was a complete lack of transparency. Um, you know, like, like you were saying, he accelerated the program from Bush. Uh, but once Trump came in, you know, it, it things just really leapt, and you know the transparency on what was happening, which was already bad, uh, just went away. I'm not sure what it's like now, 
under Biden, but knowing that there are less is certainly better. Um, obviously, none is is the ideal, but but less is certainly certainly better. Uh, it does kind of seem like the way that you're talking about it to me kind of makes it seem a little bit like Biden and his administration are really trying to to pull everything out of 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 the Mideast region and, and and the surrounding countries and kind of make that pivot towards Asia and and I think we're seeing a lot of that in the the language coming out of the White House not only about uh Ukraine but also uh you know just the language about like the Olympics is is just <laughs> incredibly like uh it, I mean there you know it's it's setting aside like the the hypocrisy of a country like the U.S. and I don't I don't want anybody to take this as uh, any kind of comment on on China, but uh, like you know, po- positive or negative, whatever. Uh, but the hypocrisy of a country like the U.S. trying to tell another country uh, that their uh, violations are somehow you know make make attending their Olympics beyond the pale when. When really that kind of standard, if it was uh, universally held, would would kind of knock the U.S. out of the running easily as well. Um, but yeah, I've just been really interested in, in the kind of the propagandizing and the noise that we're hearing about the Chinese Olympics uh, and to a lesser extent Russia. When you know, I mean, we're watching these two countries getting drawing a lot closer to each other as as the U.S. is increasingly isolated. I. Um, and I'm curious as to what you think about that. And then also, uh, you know, I, I I have family and friends overseas, and they have basically told me that, you know, the last three years, uh, especially like with COVID, uh, I mean, U.S. is toast. Like, like, the, like the credibility is gone. Uh, <laughs> like there's nothing. And so the rest of the world is starting to, to shift a little bit um, as far as like global leadership. And yeah, so I I know those are kind of a couple different uh, thoughts there, but but uh, yeah, Chinese Olympics and and just general kind of shift away from the U.S. Yeah, and I think that's exactly why the Asia pivot is so important, and <clears throat> because the U.S. knows that it's slipped its grip, you know, like its grip has slipped away from like Africa, for example. China has moved in and done a lot of investments and a lot of loan programs that have kind of usurped the IMF and World Bank's uh, grip on the entire continent. And so I think that that's that's really what this is about. I mean, they they saw how China has kind of moved in, economically speaking. And at the same time, the U.S. has just been, you know, just wasted trillions of dollars and just what really did they, what advantage did they really gain in terms of like global hegemony other than that's just the complete obliteration and decimation of countries, which I guess was partly the goal, right? To just prevent these countries from maintaining any sort of independence and decimating their economy. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's exactly what's going on in China. You know, people like Anthony Blinken are out there being like China's ambition is to basically control the world and like dominate the planet. And it's like, dude, projection much? Like, look at what the fuck the US is doing. I mean, Jesus Christ, man, like take a, take a look in the mirror, Blinken. So the propaganda follows suit, of course. We know the corporate media largely acts as an arm of the Pentagon. It's dutifully, uh, the dutiful stenographers in the corporate media just 
constantly and hypocritically just bashing China and Russia with no context or perspective whatsoever. And so not only is it the all-out war on the Olympics, whether it's, you know, calling for a diplomatic boycott, it's like, all right, man, like, what about us? (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) Like a lot of countries look at the U.S. as the largest threat in the world and the largest terrorist operation in the world. So, like, I mean, yeah, there should be a BDS campaign and a diplomatic boycott against anything that we host here. But then you see, you know, pundits, uh, similarly to what happened during the Russia Olympic Games, just trying to delegitimize, you know, every facet of what we're seeing, even so much as calling for that Chinese or is it American skier who went and played for the Chinese team, but even though she's Chinese, and they want her to like it's, denounce it's, it's out of control. It is it out of denounce control. China's. It's like, dude, what? Like, is the, are we mandating you? Like, are other countries declaring for, or like calling for U.S. Uh, athletes to denounce U.S. war crimes? Like, where? Like, it's just so crazy to me, and the hysteria is just at a fever pitch. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I luckily I unplugged from like cable news a couple months ago. Otherwise, I I would be just much more upset. But yeah, I mean, the little things that I am seeing here and there are just hilarious. And like the vaccine skepticism about China's vaccine is also very funny because the corporate media, of course, you know, on one hand, purging a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant on social media and stuff like that. Big tech working in concert with the state. But then you have the same corporate media outlets basically sowing skepticism of any vaccine that's not u.s so china's vaccine is is you know is basically not to be trusted cuba's vaccine is not to be trusted sputnik you have to go and get a u.s vaccine in order to enter this country if you live in russia so it's just gross the level of hypocrisy is stunning owen yeah yeah no i i i agree and i think that um you know it for a a government that is and, and you know the Biden government that you know that is that is talking a lot making a lot of noise about how um you know they they want to get the country uh back on track and real I mean I, I don't even know what that means at this point I don't even really know what's closed but um you, you know you know we need to get everybody vaccinated we need to get everybody and and which I agree I you know we do but uh you're right to then turn around and, and spread the almost like to the, to the word, like the same talking points that <laughs> are being, you know, are being used. And then they're just like flipping those around and using them against, uh, you know, the, the uh, Chinese vaccine and the Cuban one. And it just doesn't, and, and the Russian one as well. Right. And yeah, it, it and it's just like it, a lot of time I find actions that the U S and uh, it, it Governments in general, uh, actions that they make just don't seem like they're very well thought out. It doesn't seem like there's been really any thought to like the long term ramifications of literally anything that they do. It's just about short term gain. And I think that, I mean, I think that like everything that we're we're talking about, like you know, like like you're saying, they go and and I realize I'm bringing it back a little bit here, but you know, they go and they strike in Syria. They go and try and take out an ISIS leader. Like you're saying, they uh, destroyed the lives of dozens of people in in the process. It doesn't matter. Another leader pops right up. Um, like the, like the way that the organization is set up, it's not like something where um, you know you you take out one person and then and then the thing collapses. It just it, it just continues to uh, 
to work. And so th- like the net effect of, of doing that is, is going to be negative, but, but yet they just continue to do it anyway. Like that, like that is just the way that the policy is same thing, you know, and, and, and maybe it's profit, maybe it's, um, uh, short, short-sighted tactical strategy. Maybe it's a combination of all of it. I don't know, but it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's a very short-sighted uh, imperial policy that you could tell there's there's no incentive whatsoever of de-escalation anywhere. It's it's the opposite, and it kind of makes sense when you're looking at like, you know, where does where does Joe Biden get his foreign policy ideas from? Well, the cabinet that uh, that he's picked basically are all tied in with these kind of shadowy think tanks. The think tanks are funded by defense contractors and it, and it kind of all just works in concert. I mean, to benefit the military industrial complex and of course to line the coffers of, of these defense contractors, because that's really who's profiting from this. Um, Anthony Blinken tied in with West exec advisors, uh, this is a, some shadowy consulting firm that consults, you know, defense contractors on how to basically push certain policies and whatnot. And if you look at these policy prescriptions from all of these think tanks, there's never, there's never even an utterance of like a de-escalation policy or tactic. It's always, we have to ramp up our nuclear arsenal. We have to ramp up troop movements. We have to ramp up drone strikes. It's like, we have to just be the bully in the room. We have to do everything possible to basically uh, destabilize the countries that are not completely subservient to us. It's pretty crazy shit, but really it's like kind of laid out. Um, if you just kind of dig into where all of these ideas are generating from, and that's that's the first step to actually having things happen is you write it down in a policy and then it becomes <laughs> and, then it, and then it somehow takes effect. Yeah, some some um, version of it is adopted. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and the Ukraine thing is just a, a perfect example of how haywire and insane U.S. foreign policy truly is. Absolutely. So um, I'm gonna um, we got about uh, fifteen twenty minutes left here, so I'm gonna take uh, a caller. I I have you set. I'm not going to try and pronounce your name because I don't think I can do it. And also, obviously, with my name, I know what it's like when people mispronounce it. So uh, (laughs) go ahead. Well, thank you for that, Owen. Uh, I'm glad you can relate. But I don't really mind too much if people mispronounce or not. Um, But my name is Kusha, Kusha Madonlo. And it's a pleasure to be on your program, Owen. And it's a pleasure to be in dialogue with both you and Abby Martin today. You spoke about Iran when you were on Joe Rogan's program. And you've spoken about it in many areas, like the Mm -hmm. video you put out with uh, I believe his name is Dan Kovalik. And so you said some things that uh, were very curious for me, um, mm-hmm. things that I believe were correct, but I feel like there was an element of um, the story not having been completed fully. And not necessarily because you're acting in bad faith. I don't think you do. Um, but there are just some things that I would like to ask you some questions on, some uh, some some takes that you stated. And if there's... So something- I do think... I just, I just do want to interrupt just for a second, just because there is one person behind you. So... Uh, sure. Maybe, maybe we just keep it at like maybe uh, one or two questions. Sure, that's fine. One, one, one general question about the Islamic Republic of Iran is fine. Okay, so my question is, would you be open to doing a video like the one you did about Saudi Arabia? The, you've done many, but showing that the Islamic Republic is a vicious, brutal, murderous regime, but showing that Iran has a rich, secular left history. First of all, I really appreciate uh everything that you just said. And I know obviously this is a very personal issue and what happened to your 
father and your family is absolutely horrific. And I've heard plenty of horror stories from actually close friends of mine, you know, who who have family in Iran or who are uh, who are Iranian. And so um, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, and and actually, I was wrong. Like Iran was never, of course, directly colonized. It was just under UK kind of uh, colonial holdover with the control of the oil. So it actually wasn't directly colonized um, by the UK. So I actually was wrong in that Joe Rogan interview. But but as you mentioned, I mean, of course, there's a lot more context and a lot more history that, of course, is left out from a lot of these conversations, because I think there's kind of a reflexive need to to not defend, because, of course, the Islamic Republic is not it's not a leftist country by any means. And the leadership is extremely conservative. Um, but there is this kind of reflexive tendency uh, with people like me and uh, among other people of the anti-imperialist left who I think just say it's not my place to like pile on to U.S. attacks of these countries that are in the crosshairs of U.S. foreign policy right now. Although I completely understand what you are saying and I feel like it's crucial to give space toward your viewpoint. Um, it is difficult to like prioritize, you know, creating a documentary or a video just basically documenting like the crimes and horrific policies of, of the current government in Iran. I have done comprehensive interviews uh, where I've talked about that quite honestly in the context of, you know, what's going on now with the nuclear deal. But I think that like doing something similarly to what I did about Saudi Arabia, just, it just doesn't make sense right now. Um, but I'm totally open to learning more. I obviously didn't know the context that you were bringing up or the details that you just brought up about, you know, Mosaddegh. So definitely interested in hearing more. Definitely shoot me an email or DM and um, love to follow up about about that and just get more info. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And I really appreciated that uh, as as well. I don't um, I, I know we had to kind of cut it a little short, but uh, uh, I, I think that if I could just add on to what you were saying, Abby, as well. Uh, just before we take Timothy here is that I think for a lot of us who are opposed to U.S. imperialism and uh, take that anti-imperialist approach uh, to covering this stuff and to thinking about it, um, you know, a lot of the time the question really becomes uh, what's the best use of your time? And mm. for me, it's it's very difficult for me to kind of wrap my head around the utility of kind of criticizing countries that are not, that, that, that I don't have any connection to. And as, as somebody, uh, you know, with, you know, like, uh, well, American and Irish citizenship, but like as, as somebody in the U S you know, I, I feel comfortable criticizing the U S and the U S's actions. I feel comfortable criticizing the actions of countries that are our client states and that, that work with us and that we fund. But I feel that when it comes to our kind of like unofficial or official state enemies, I find, I, I find it a little more difficult uh, to kind of justify going into that so much. I know that there are a lot of, look, there are a lot of great reporters who, who do that work and do it fairly. Um, but uh, I, I, I just don't uh, see the place for, for it for myself anyway. Um, no, I can I, I that's really well said, Owen, and I you know, I totally Thank agree you. with you because I um yeah, I think that that's a perfect way to say it. Is like I you know, it's the same it's the same kind of thing that was going on like 
during the ramp up to the Iraq war when it's like you had to denounce Saddam in order to like give a criticism of what the U.S. policy was. And it's like, I don't, you know, it's the same kind of like with China. It's like, well, what should we do about China? It's like, look, I am an American citizen. My country is a huge dominant empire that is subjugating hundreds of millions of people around the world. And I feel like all of my energy and utility needs to focus on tamping down on U.S. brutality and wars. And like, of course, providing space for people to tell their own stories and provide obviously important, crucial historical context to these conflicts is very important, you know, but like for me, my reporting, I feel like it's so underreported, the crimes of empire, and it's so such little people really understand the severity of what our foreign policy does that I feel like I'm I, I have to just put my efforts into exposing that. Um, so yeah, cool, cool, yeah, definitely same page. So uh, Timothy, thanks for thanks for hanging out there. Uh, uh, go ahead, please. Timothy, you are muted. You good? Tell you what, I'm going to remove you from the queue and have you uh, call right back on. So just jump back on, and we'll see, and and, and we'll see if we can get that that audio. Uh, yeah, Timothy, I don't. I, it took me a second to figure out how to unmute myself too. The little mic on the bottom, maybe that helps. Timothy. Timothy. All right. Well, um, let's see. Timothy, keep trying, but um, but I guess I guess we'll just uh, we'll start to wrap a little bit here. Um, you know, I, th- I think we've covered a lot of topics, um, and I think uh, there's obviously like a lot more that that we could talk about here. Uh, but I guess any kind of concluding thoughts on on kind of where Biden's foreign policy is going and, 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 and what we think is, is coming next. Uh, I mean, Abby, obviously you, you pay a lot of attention to this stuff. Uh, what do you think, what do you think the next year is going to look like? Do you think that the midterm elections are going to play into any of his decisions? And uh, you know, where, where do you think his, his focus is going to be? Well, this Russia-Ukraine stuff is completely out of control, and it really worries me. Um, you know, I, I I do believe in the concept of some sort of like a deep state apparatus, not in the cartoonish way that Trump, you know, popularized the term, but actually kind of an unchanging system that is continuous from administration to administration. And so I don't know how much control Biden really has on steering the ship in terms of changing these policies of empire. But I think it really is displayed with this recent Ukraine hysteria because even Biden came out, you know, and said, like, we're not going to really do anything if Russia, I think his quote was like, commits a minor incursion. And that was just like, it was like a bomb went off. Like everyone was just freaked out being like, how could you not do anything? Like, oh my God, Biden said he's not going to do anything if Russia does this, this and this. And so then he had to come out and basically like reverse his position and be like, no, we are going to do this. And then sending all of this, all of these weapons right on the border of Russia, sending 3000 troops there. It's just like, good God. I mean, it, it really worries me in terms of where we are going 
Because even when you look at Obama's administration, I mean, he did not capitulate to the most hawkish members, you know, despite the horrific war crimes that Obama oversaw with Libya and drone bombings and the like. Um, he did not capitulate in terms of sending weapons to Ukraine and mm -hmm. also the red line, you know, the, the no fly zone, excuse me, in Syria. And so those were two big things that really upset the most hawkish members of the foreign policy uh, establishment. And so I don't know if yeah. that's going to if, if they're just going to try to get Biden more and more egg him on more and more to actually cause something to happen in Russia, because that's how wars sometimes happen. It's just like sometimes it's not even intentional. Sometimes it's just a mistake or, you know, shooting down something that you thought was aimed at you and then it turns into a full-fledged fucking war and so that's why what biden's doing in russia is so dangerous this it's completely manufactured it's totally unnecessary this escalation and russia has very simple red lines understandably so because ukraine is on the border and their two red lines are both things that the u.s has crossed officially at this point so that's very worrisome as far as where the rest of his policy is going to go i think you know, um, there's not many more just places to left to second. bomb and invade. Yeah. Just, just uh, Timothy, I heard you making a little noise there. Are you there? Yeah. What's going on? Can you guys hear me? Yes, yeah. we can. Excellent. Go oh, ahead, my please. God. No, I'm sorry. I don't know what was happening before. Um, <laughs> what's going on, Owen? I just wanted to thank you for, you know, giving me a platform and uh, an opportunity to have this conversation. And Abby, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, I love you and all the work that you do. Uh, I've seen every episode of Breaking the Set when you were at RT. I've listened to pretty much every episode of Media Roots Radio. I've seen every episode of Empire Files. I'll try to be more concise than the last caller. I'm just wondering, you know, what should a, a devoted and committed fan like myself come to expect from Empire Files and from Abby Martin in the forthcoming <laughs> year? That's an easy question. Thanks, Timothy. You let me... Let me get off easy on that one. Um, well, as you know, uh, we're doing the Earth's Greatest Enemy film right now, and we're pretty much halfway done with filming. It's a very exciting project, and I hope it can be a major anti-imperialist intervention in the environmental movement, exposing the U.S. military as the largest institutional polluter um, and a huge uh, exacerbator of climate change that's totally unaccountable. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what we're preparing to do. We also have, of course, our podcast series continuing on Empire Files. We're putting out a CIA stories with Oliver Stone about the JFK assassination. Just doing a lot of a lot of things here and there. Still going to be pumping out content, but yeah, largely we are, you know, limiting the video content to work on this next film. But yeah, as anything happens, um, like the, with this Ukraine thing, or if anything pops up in Palestine, we'll definitely try to be there to provide. Um, the latest analysis on on what biden's doing and what's going on around the world so thank you so much for your support man i really appreciate it yeah yeah excellent yeah timothy thank you for that um so yeah i think uh i actually think that's like a perfect place to end it uh great so abby thank you so much uh for joining us uh timothy kusha thank you guys so much for calling in um if you're listening to this on the app please hit the subscribe button and uh You'll get uh, updates whenever whenever we go live. And thanks, everybody, uh, for joining us. And again, Abby, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great one. Bye. Bye.